passage that Paul just read for us, the first part of chapter 2. These words have been authored by God himself. They have been written down by the Apostle Paul and they're for our benefit this morning. So uh, join with me now as we pray and uh, we ask God to bless us this morning. O Lord, bless us, your children. Bless us now as we come to you, as we come to your word. We ask that you might continue your work of transformation in our lives, changing us ever into the likeness of Christ. Teach us to think and to act and to be as he is and as he was. We pray for us as a church that the manner of our fellowship might be, as it says in chapter 1, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen. So I was thinking the other day and I thought, gee, it's been a long time since we've had a church camp. And uh, the idea of organising a church camp, I'm like, whoa. Um, But another idea came to me and I said, oh, well, maybe we could all go out as a church for dinner together. And as I say that, you're thinking to yourself, where are we going to go? And someone's thinking Italian and someone's thinking Indian. And a mature voice pipes in and says, this place has seniors discount. And I pipe up and I say, whoa, kids eat free over here. And uh, someone's sitting there very quietly, pondering, I wonder if the church would be willing to come to my favourite restaurant, The Virtuous Vegan. Meanwhile, Ian's probably already pulling out his phone if he was here, looking at making a group booking at the Contented Carnivore. Unity. Uh, We all want it, don't we? But sometimes it seems like it's a bit out of reach. We all want it, but we all have a different mind, and sometimes we all pull in a different direction. And yet unity isn't out of reach. And as we read uh, the words in Philippians here, it's possible that you already sat there reflecting on, on the beauty of the comfort of love that you have already experienced within the body of Christ. When I walked in this morning, I looked around the church and I thought to myself, goodness, I can pretty much without exception think of a time when every single one of you seated in this building has encouraged me in a specific way. And there is something deeply precious about Christian unity and Christian fellowship. It's one of the sweetest things that Christians will ever taste, in this life at least. Um, Week to week, as I I try and form a habit of counting my blessings, I, I continually find myself thinking of who it was in the church that encouraged me this week. I want to encourage us as we, as we kickstart off this morning to reflect on those times that we've received encouragement and to treasure them. So this morning as we come to the scriptures, I don't want us to be downcast. I want us to be encouraged with the blessings that we have received to date and that we are yet to receive in the body of Christ. I want us to take a moment to ponder them. Uh, I want you to be encouraged at the prospect of continued ongoing and deepening fellowship together as a church. As we come together this morning, it remains to be said that disunity is a reality that we must contend with. Selfishness is the default of the carnal man, and schism, unfortunately, is the cyanide of fellowship. And we need to also acknowledge that. And to reap the blessings of Christian fellowship, we must learn to overcome these these schismatic features that we bring to the church in the power of Christ and the unity that he brings. In the closing of the previous chapter, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come 
and see you or am absent. I'm a hearer of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2 then, God through the Apostle Paul teaches us why Christian unity is so important, how do we attain it, and what is its perfection. In beginning then, why is Christian unity so important? Let me read the first verse. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. There are indeed many reasons why Christian unity is important. The previous chapter highlighted the importance of it as we together contend with a hostile world. In unity we strive forward. Jesus has earlier said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. In unity we witness. Uh, But the focus here is that Christian unity is so precious because it is a blessing to each one of us. In unity we are enriched and we grow. It's possible possible that when I first mentioned Christian unity, some of you automatically shift a little bit to the defensive. I've tried that before, you might say. I'm sure it tasted sweet, but the aftertaste was bitter. Or, I've tried that before. I came halfway, but you didn't reciprocate. I tried that before, but there was no one else like me. I was unique. There was no commonality. I think it's really important this morning. I want to be very sympathetic to to what you have experienced thus far. I don't want to discount the efforts that you have made and that you are making. I want to acknowledge that Christian unity can be hard to attain. I don't want to pretend to understand what you've gone through. But I do want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to keep pursuing it. Even though it is hard, keep pursuing Christian unity. Maybe you don't consider that you've given up on Christian unity altogether. Just for a season, you say. Just for a season, I've given up on it. Or just in this context. Or just with those people. Later in chapter 4, Paul is going to plead with Yodia and Suntike to agree in the Lord. Paul doesn't say, so I hear there are two women in your congregation who don't agree with one another. They've had a tiff and a falling out. You've tried to make it right. It didn't really work out. That's okay. See them on different sides of the aisle. Put them in different community groups. You can, you can tolerate a little bit of disunity, it's okay. No, the issue is important enough that, that Paul actually addresses it head-on, publicly, in his letter to the whole church. Sometimes I think we should be more direct, and I can almost hear uh, Diego telling me this as I wrote the sermon, I thought, yes, you're, you're right. Um, but getting back to, to the theme then, if this is you this morning, if you are trying to practice selective Christian unity. I want to call that out and I want to plead with you, don't settle for it. God is calling you to something, something greater to pursue. And it's not just for those who feel on the outer to to pursue it. All of us need to pursue this. Collectively, we need to pursue the bond of unity. I want to remind us this morning that, that unity is worth it and we shouldn't settle for restricted Christian unity or partial 
Christian unity. And finally, I think a word needs to be said for those who don't suffer from restricted Christian unity or partial Christian unity, but what I would call tepid Christian unity. Low intensity. Some people get on well with everyone. Uh, They turn up each week, they smile, they say their hellos, but their fellowship is, is shallow because they never plug in and they never share life. The deepest Christian fellowship and the, and the blessings therein come from those who, as Paul says in the earlier chapter, strive side by side for the cause of the gospel. So when Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, the expected answer is yes. Yes, there is. These things are there. They are there to be had and they are to be found in healthy Christian community. So the implication is, get off the sidelines, get into the game and get involved. Engage in that community, strive for that unity, build up that unity. Unity is on the one hand, it's a supernatural objective reality. It's already yours in the atonement that Christ has won for you. And we can put on our theological hats and we can sit there as warm and friendly as a cold puddle on a winter's morning and we can say, yes, the dividing wall of hostility has come down. We are one in Christ Jesus. But unity is more than that. Unity is a subjective reality. As uh, Paul started with Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is not just objectively good he is subjectively good and christian community is not just objectively good it is subjectively good it should be among the deepest experiences common to christians the joy of fellowship so if there are these things to be had it makes all the more sense to make every effort to maintain the unity of the bond of peace that is put as it comes across in ephesians you see no one experiences encouragement in isolation No one experiences the comfort of love in isolation. No one experiences any of these qualities in verse 1 in isolation. So get into community. Build community. Treasure and maintain that community, even at cost. And don't let disunity, past or present, rob you of the joy of Christian community and of the blessings that are found therein. And don't fool yourself into thinking that just turning up to church is fitting participation in the body of Christ. Go deeper, my friends. And don't fool yourself into saying that I can have unity with half the body of Christ. We must go broader, my friends. Dig the wealth of the blessings that are to be had in deep Christian unity. These blessings are from Christ, and they are to you, but they are mediated to you through the congregation of the saints, I'm reminded of the story of David and Jonathan, and I think it's perhaps one of the most heartwarming stories of the Old Testament narratives. Jonathan is the crown prince, and he shows such great courage and faith as he fights the battles of the Lord. He is of royal blood, he's the crown prince, and David comes onto the scene. And you know what? David shows courage and faith as he fights the battles of the Lord. David's the rising star. And as David's popularity increases, Jonathan's father, King Saul, 
senses the threat to the kingly line and he becomes increasingly jealous and increasingly hostile. But as David continues to win victories for God's people, Jonathan becomes increasingly affectionate. Jonathan arms David. Jonathan covenants with David. Jonathan encourages David. Eventually, Saul chases David away. He tries to kill him. And David is fleeing the wilderness, and you can tell that David's spirit's a little low. And we come across uh, one of the, the most beautiful verses in 1 Samuel. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Halesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. I do apologise, I didn't get time for a slideshow. That's 1 Samuel 23, 16 and 17. Um, You have to sit back and you say, wow, what a blessing it is for David to have a friend like Jonathan. And we read in Philippians that God has designed to bless you through the Christian community around you. You want these people in your life, these people who will come alongside you, support you, strengthen you and say, do not fear the hand of Saul. It is in this community that you will be blessed with encouragement. That's a hand up from in front. That's the occasional kick in the pants from behind. And that's that pat on the shoulder that says, come on, brother. Come on, sister. In his strength, you can do this. It's in this community that you will be blessed with the comfort of love, the love ministered by the hands of the saints. It is in this community that we share the common experience of joint participation in the Spirit. It is in this community that we experience affection, that we receive sympathy, Uh, it's my great prayer that, that many of you are resonating, saying, yes, this has been my experience. Um, I know this already. Can I encourage you to continue to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Don't turn the, the tap of blessings off. Consider also how, how you, as you engage in that community, can become the conduit for the blessings of God to the community of believers. And for those of you who say, this isn't my experience. These blessings haven't been mine. Uh, We want to hear this with great sadness. And we want to first grieve with you that that hasn't been your experience. But we also want to extend our Christian fellowship to you. We want to incorporate you in that. Show us how we can improve. Show us how we can love you and bless you. Moving now to consider uh, verses 2 and 4. Sorry, 2 through to 4. The train of thought is something like this. If there is encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy to be had, well then have them. And make my joy complete by being in unity. The blessings of Christian unity are all too quickly dissolved by the toxin of disunity. So the initial thrust of verse 2 can be a little bit hard to grasp. Let's read it together. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
It's quite easy to appreciate at face value that unity is clearly central here, uh, but having those four nouns, abstract nouns, in uh, quick succession can leave us a little bit dizzy. Um, and I think it's important, uh, really important, to actually grapple with what it means to have the same mind and then later on, as he puts it, one mind. Having the sentence both start and finish with this word clearly demonstrates the, the integral nature of this idea that, that Paul is calling us to. And that's further reinforced when we get down to verse 5 and it talks about have this mind among yourselves. And again, it's that same word carrying through. We've got to be uh, very... We've really got to work out what this mind is because it's going to be central to how we understand and apply this passage. We often... I often... I often equate mind with intellect or thought or reason. If I was to say, you're of a great mind, that means you're a deep thinker. You're an intellectual acrobat. When Paul here exhorts being of the same mind, one mind, uh, I ask myself the question, is he telling us to intellectually coalesce into some sort of uniformity of theological perspective? That would be wonderful, I think. That would be fantastic. Uh, and that will happen one day, come Lord Jesus. Now I know in part, as it says in 1 Corinthians, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. But theological uniformity is, is not actually what Paul has in his crosshairs on this occasion. One commentator remarks that it is rather a dominant attitude or settled disposition of the entire person. And this becomes clear as we have a look at the, the various usages of this word as we trace it through the, uh, through the epistles to the Philippians. The word is phroneo. Here it's translated as mind, but, but Paul uses it quite a bit in this letter. So initially, Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. Same word, phroneo. The description of the mind of Christ in verse 5 of this chapter, when we look at it in context, it's not a it's not a celebration of the intellectual prowess of Jesus, though that certainly exists. It's a celebration of that sacrificial attitude of love towards others. <clears throat> In the next chapter, uh, Paul talks about those who are mature. They set their minds on the upward call of Christ. It is that attitude or disposition. Similarly, the enemies of the cross set their minds on the earthly things, same word on both occasions. Yodia and Syntyche, as we mentioned, are asked to agree with one another in the Lord. That is, to mind one another in the Lord. It's that attitude towards each other. In the Philippians, uh, Paul writes, were concerned for Paul. They were mindful for Paul. Frono again. As you can hopefully see now, the word is really addressing, particularly in this context, what is our attitude towards one another? Be of the same mind. Be of one mind. Merely thinking the same thoughts isn't going to be sufficient. There's a deeper change within us, a change of attitude. Putting it in the context of the verse then, we are called to be of the same mind, and this is a disposition of love towards each other. Having the same love, Paul writes. We are called to a bond that runs deeper than, oh yeah, we go to the same church. Oh yeah, we've got the same worldview. 
He writes that we are to be in full accord and, and literally souls together or soulmates, if you would. He writes, then finally, uh, to be of the same mind again, or actually precisely to be of one mind. Now, I can think the same thing as you, but be in a state of disunity towards you. And Paul says that doesn't cut it. Paul is asking us to share this deep-seated attitude and disposition, an attitude and disposition which encompasses love and unity and common regard. And as we shall see from verse 5 onwards, he's calling us to the very mindset of Christ. And the ideal church that Paul asks us to strive towards, disunity is actually simply out of the question. Passive disinterest is insufficient. Neutrality is as hostility. Uh, Disengagement is really selling yourself short. Even mild affection is a mile too short. Paul continues accordingly. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, I'm reminded of the example of Jonathan, who cared not that his future access to the throne was potentially in jeopardy. Uh, He rejoiced at David's victories. He rejoiced at David's success and the success of God's people. And in that final verse, we see that he's seemingly already resigned to the fact that he's going to abdicate his throne to David. And this, we shall see, is the pattern of the mind of Christ for the believers within his community. And so we struggle to work out what that... Sorry. And so as we struggle to work out what that looks like to have the mind of Christ, the mindsets towards each other, we need to focus our our eyes now on verses 5 to 11. And we're going to consider the example of Christ, the example of perfection. We're going to consider it elaborated on with greater resolution. Beginning in verse 5, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The translators and commentators um, wrestle with this one a little bit, trying to work out whether or not Paul is indicating that we should uh, have this mind, which is, uh, let me read it, whether it indicates that in Christ is our mind's example, or perhaps in Christ is our mind's transformation. They're trying to determine whether or not when it talks about being in Christ, whether or not that is the transformation that brings about that mindset or whether or not it is the example of Christ which demonstrates that mindset. And uh, one commentator noting the, the deliberate, potentially deliberate breadth of the underlying Greek texts asks the question, well, can't it be both? And I'm out of my depth here, but I think we can probably safely come to the text and say we do know that Christ is our example, and we do know that he is the power of our transformation. So I think we can probably comfortably keep both in view as we go through these verses now. Um, But the detail of the subsequent verses that follow, 6 to 11, the the way that the actions of Christ are so detailed, call us to consider Christ's example as our example, and we're going to focus on that today. Let us read these verses now. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted in him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you read a a passage like that, the first thing you need to do is to step back and just to marvel at the love of God for us. I read it and I want to ask the question, who are we that Jesus would so give himself for us? And obviously we all know the answer is not who we are, but who Jesus is. Not in position, but in disposition. In position, obviously Jesus is the Lord of all the universe. In disposition, he is love. Pure and unadulterated love. And this is the mind of Christ which Paul holds up as the example for us. Before we chew through and and consider, I guess, the application of the hymn as it pertains to our circumstances, it's worth quickly clarifying, uh, quickly commenting on a few things. Firstly, in verse 6, you'll notice that the pre-incarnate Jesus is given no beginning, but he is assumed eternal. Uh, You already know this, but it's worth just sort of reinforcing it. This is in line with with the broader biblical testimony to the eternal nature of Jesus. Jesus is seen to be divine. Again, you know this. And finally, we do not see Jesus relinquish his divinity. When it says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, the idea is not that he, he gave up his divinity, but he didn't view his position as something to be wielded to his advantage, something to be exploited. And that becomes pertinent for us as we consider ourselves as a church. So Paul writes, have this mind. And we must consider that Christ surrendered the privileges of his position. He, the ruler of the universe, becomes a servant, or a more literal translation, a slave. He who dwelt in heaven takes on flesh on earth. If this weren't enough, he surrenders uh, himself voluntarily to a cross. And he who existed in incomprehensible glory is subjected to the pungent shame of the Roman cross. And finally, he who is the life of the world tastes death. Pondering the example of Christ forces me to recognize that as it pertains to growing in Christian maturity, as it pertains to my attitude towards my Christian brothers and sisters, I think the word infant would be an embellishment and and I think perhaps embryonic, microscopic, would, would be a better descriptor. We're forced to reflect on how much further we have to go in the growth of our maturity. But I want to bring this home to us now. I want to bring it home for you and me as to how this plays out for us. I want to bring this home for Eastgate. What is it going to mean for us if we are to have the mind of Christ among us? 
What is this going to mean for us to carry this attitude into our relationships with one another? The first thing it's evidently going to mean is that we're not going to play the status card. Jesus didn't. He was God, but he accepted the incarnation. We're not going to insulate ourselves in our privileged position. Jesus descended from heaven to earth to help us. A week or two ago, I was talking to someone who's ex-military, and uh, they talked about the 10,000-kilometer screwdriver. What is this, I thought. Well, apparently this is a title that, that servicemen on the front line used to describe politicians and bureaucrats who want to control a situation on the front line, want to fix some messy situation from the safety of their office back in Canberra. And the idea is that you cannot be effectively engaged in a situation from such a distance. Sometimes members of our fellowship may find themselves in the middle of messy and, frankly, difficult situations. And we're faced with a choice. We can maintain a safe distance and we can try and help them from afar. I'll pray for you, we say. That's a good start. But sometimes as we look at the reality of the example of Christ, sometimes we need to follow that example and we need to remember him who descended from the order of heaven into the chaos of our world to save us. And we're going to say, well, it's going to get messy, but I'm going in. I'm going to enter this situation to help out a brother or a sister in need. I think it's also worth mentioning at this point in time, it's very easy to think about helping out someone who uh, has had a car accident, a not-at-fault not car accident. You know, we're, we're very quick to help those people who have a moderate amount of chaos that wasn't their fault. Um, we are called not just to help those who are innocent bystanders that are caught up in a tragedy not of their own making. Our tragedy as sinners, our salvation was a crisis that wasn't, of, uh, that, that wasn't something forced upon us. It was our sin. We had stuffed up the situation. We were at fault and Christ descended into our chaos to save us from our mess, a mess of our making. And so it's no use us saying, oh, it's their own stupid fault. I'm not going to help them. I'm not going to get involved in that messy situation. The love of Christ beckons us to go beyond that. <clears throat> the second thing uh, is that as we adorn the mind of Christ, it's going to mean obedience. I think it's worth mentioning that obedience implies that we undertake a task that is intrinsically undesirable. Otherwise, we would not be motivated by duty and obedience. We'd be motivated by pleasure, right? I once heard uh, someone teaching on the verse, um, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And he explained that as we come to Christ, our will and our desire is transformed. Uh, we learn to yearn for the things of God. We, we want the will of God. And so whatever you want, you can do because you now want the right things. And a few of you go, whoa, that's a little bit dangerous territory. And I don't think he meant to lead us into some sort of crazy 
uh, antinomian chaos, right? Um, I think he was hoping that we would just automatically, intrinsically so enjoy doing all the right things that we would need no encouragement but automatically do all the right things. But we see that's not even the example of Christ. For Christ, there was no intrinsic joy in the crucifixion. But he approaches the cross in obedience and he calls us to obedience. And we can say that there is no intrinsic joy in this action that I have to take in loving my brother or sister. There's joy in the offering, in knowing that we are pleasing God in doing so. But the action itself, we can model the obedience of Christ that says, no, I am duty-bound to love my brother or sister in this situation anyway. Taking on the mind of Christ may mean humiliation. The cross was uh, not only painful, but it was deeply shameful. And we ask ourselves the question, are we willing to bear humiliation in our service to the saints? And finally, ultimately, in extreme circumstances, serving the body of Christ may mean death. It's hard for us to, to contemplate that. But it did mean death for our master, and it has meant death for, for his disciples down through the ages at times. We can only pray that God might strengthen us for such a possibility should it arise. That brings us to the end of verse 8. And we ask ourselves, well, what do we do then with verses 9 through to 11? How does this apply to what Paul has, has earlier said? 9 to 11 describe the ascension and the, and the glorification of the risen Lord. Well, this is a great encouragement, and we should not forget to consider it as we undertake Christ-like service to the saints because it shows that God is pleased with sacrificial service. He was pleased with the actions of Christ. And so it exhorts us to act likewise. It compels us. We don't need to be all doom and gloom. Woe is me, a miserable, dutiful servant. No, we rejoice. Paul will later say, rejoice in the Lord always. And here we can rejoice because we are reminded that our labours are pleasing to God. The action itself may not be intrinsically pleasing or enjoyable, but the knowledge that we are serving our Creator, the knowledge that this is pleasing to God, great joy. And we look forward to the day when we are caught up to the heavenlies in Christ. Having the mind of Christ liberates you to serve with joy even when the service itself is unjoyful. In closing then, I want to say three things. I could almost reduce this down to two, I'm not sure. Um, firstly, I want to say a word to anyone here who might not belong to the community of God's people. We'll play it safe and we'll go three things. Anyone who has not yet called on Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Up until this point, uh, you might be understandably thinking to myself, goodness, nothing this guy saying is actually relevant to my situation. Uh, yes, that's because you're not in the community of the believers. Um, but it is my prayer that God might be at work in your life. And as you today are confronted by the selfless attitude of Christ, you might be left thinking, goodness, this is not what I am like, but this is what I am meant to be like and that you might feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon your life. <clears throat> and I know that this is what you're not like if, 
uh, if you're not yet a son of God. Uh, because if you're not yet a son of God, you're a son of Adam. And as Adam fell in the garden, so too we can know that we have fallen and will fall and continue to fall, helplessly fall. It's not until we accept Jesus as our saviour that we'll be freed from the corruption of Adam, the corruption that's common to all mankind. In the garden, Adam, though he wasn't God, he sought to grasp equality with God and he ate the forbidden fruit. Christ, though he was God, did not grasp equality with God, but he emptied himself. Adam, through his disobedience, became enslaved to sin. Christ, through his obedience, demonstrated the actions of a slave for righteousness. Adam's disobedience brought the prospect of death to everyone in the world. It brought death to everyone in the world, death that needed to be undone by the obedience of Jesus Christ, who brings the prospect of life to all who will believe. If you can see in Christ's example that which you were meant to be and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I want to implore you to come to Christ to be cleansed and to begin becoming what he already is. The second thing that I want to say is for those of you who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, can I remind you this morning that fellowship is worth the risk. It is worth the cost. There are blessings in fellowship, God-ordained blessings that cannot be obtained in isolation. Foster the fellowship of the saints in your life Seek those opportunities to grow in community. Don't hold back. And the final thing that I want to say is to all of those who both call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and also call Eastgate Bible Church their home, their home church. If this is you, I want to ask you for a second to look around. Go on. Have a look at those people in front of you and beside you and behind you. In God's design, they are intended to be conduits of grace to you. A comfort of love, sympathy and affection. But I want you to also consider as you look at them around the world, uh, sorry, around the room, that in God's design, you are also designed to be a conduit of God's blessing to them. Invest in the Christian community in such a way that you are being a conduit of God's blessing to God's people. And this will only be achieved as we put on the mind of Christ, learning not to think of our own interests, but the interests of others. It'll be achieved as we learn to follow his ways and say no to the privileges of position and power and freedom and separation and say yes to the call of obedience. We will learn to look to others and we will learn to put their needs and interests first and to rejoice in their advancement, even as Jonathan rejoiced in David. And above all, we learn to look to Christ and to unite with our brother and sister and to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Let's close in prayer.
Mighty Father, thank you for the blessing of Christian unity. Thank you for the Christian unity that is already in our presence, that is bearing fruit, that is bringing blessings. Thank you for what you've done thus far. Encourage us this morning, Lord, to continue in the pursuit of unity, to push on to the unity that is ours in Christ. Encourage us with the blessings to be had in Christ through fellowship. Empower us this morning to put off the old man with all his selfish desires. Transform us this morning that we might adopt the selfless attitude of Christ. Unite us this morning in a common service and a common striving for the faith of the gospel. And may all be done to the praise of your glory. We pray. Amen.